Hello all and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales spare room based one person true crime show that tries to seek out those cases of note and interest but those that are obscure and often forgotten from the darkest depths of the UK and Ireland. Doing this each time around is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. I'm here with Peaks as ever who's nuzzling around my feet as I speak. And completing the order of everything are you guys, the wonderful enthusiasts who listen in to make the show possible and to keep it my passion to do also. It means the absolute world to me that you join me today, as it always does, and I do hope that as you've joined me, then you and those close to you are all good, you're all safe, and you're all well. So I must begin this time around with an explanation of sorts, because this month's bonus Patreon episode has been delayed for a couple of days, for various reasons and it hasn't come out at the end of the month as it usually does. But it is now done, and it will be dropping shortly after you're hearing this one. I do apologise sincerely to all supporters for the delay with this. All I can say is that sometimes life does get in the way of stuff, and some things are unavoidable. On that note, massive thanks go out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show. The shout-outs this time around to Helen Harris, William, and Vanessa Payne, plus Amy Coyne and Laura Kilby, who've each opted to annually support the show. You guys rule, you really do, thank you so kindly for doing so. Now if you wish to join these and other folks in supporting the show, to get yourself perhaps some show stuff from me, or certainly to hear unreleased bonus tales such as Obsession by the Sea, or Suffer the Little Children, maybe Disfigured, or or The Beauty in the Bikini, to name just a couple of them, then it's simple to do, and you can do it for less than four groats and a ferret egg. Just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on there. Don't forget that podcast suffix bit though, or you won't find it. Or you can do so by using the clickable link that's always placed into the episode show notes. It's right down there at the bottom with the show's follow or contact details. And boom, quicker than Ken Barlow gets on a new neighbour, you're in. So once again, I have a pair of tales for the episode this time around, which I'll get to following a short word from the episode sponsors, who are once again better help. Now we can all agree that 2020 was one of the worst years that was on record, wasn't it? And understandably, there are some of us who are still struggling with stuff from it. We are, aren't we? Perhaps for some people, it might just simply be the effects of the situation that the world's been left in now and is facing. But for others, there may be more specific things troubling them. I know, speaking for myself personally, in this past year I've suffered bereavement, illness and a drastic change in my work-life pattern that have left me concerned and conscious of me trying to be there for my nearest and dearest as much and as best that I can while striking a good work-life balance, because that doesn't always happen, does it? And if there's something blocking you from achieving your goals or is interfering with your own happiness, then BetterHelp can help you. What BetterHelp does is assesses your needs and matches you up with your very own licensed professional therapist who is specialised in all manner of issues from depression and stress right through to relationship or family conflicts for professional counselling. Just to qualify there, this isn't self-help, it's professional counselling. In just 24 hours, you can start communicating with your therapist in an online environment that's safe, is convenient and is confidential for you with a service that's available for clients worldwide, one that's much more affordable than any traditional offline counselling and one that even offers financial aid available for the service 
if it's needed. You can get in touch with your counsellor whenever you want to. You can schedule weekly telephone or video sessions with them if you wish. And the timely and thoughtful responses that you get back from them as a result all comes without that uncomfortable feeling that goes with sitting around in a waiting room because nobody likes that, do they? I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsors at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I've reached back to the mid-1990s, 1995 to be precise, for a standalone pair of tales that can only be described as true horror. There's a reason that the episode is called How It Is, that I'm sure that you'll come to see. The cases are completely unconnected and take place hundreds of miles apart, and through the episode I've tried to be as respectful as possible to those concerned. However, as you know with the show by now, I don't shy away from any details, and if these are put in, then it's because I want to bring home to you the true horror of what these people have done. It isn't done out of sensationalism or anything what's called shock or offence. It's to demonstrate what kind of individual that we're talking about here. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, in part concerning the elderly and in part describing acts of animal cruelty that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, please use your discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, Please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled Mutilated and Mangled. We head first to the West Yorkshire town of South Elmsall to begin our episode and to a sheltered accommodation bungalow on a road in the town named Little Lane that since the 1960s had been the home of pensioner Annie Saxton. By 1995, 90-year-old Annie although somewhat infirm and who made her way about largely with the use of a stick, lived a quiet and simple life, still largely independent, as is the sign of that particular generation, isn't it? Annie had been a widower since the early 1980s, following the death of her husband George, but had remained in the bungalow where the couple had lived for many years. She was comfortable there, and surrounded by the many memories that the couple had shared. It was her home, her sanctuary. George and Annie had never had any children of their own, so Annie had took it upon herself to treat the local neighbourhood children as a mother figure would. There were always gifts for them at Easter, Christmas and birthdays, and in turn, she was loved greatly by them and revered in a maternal way, with her sideboard hosting scores of Mother's Day cards for Auntie Annie, as she was affectionately known, every year. Any jobs that she wanted doing would be done by people who'd known and grown close to her for many years. And although she was an independent soul, as we've said, her age and infirmity meant that she wasn't as outgoing as she once was, so people extra looked out for her, running errands for her, and largely helping out with her chores. So by age 90, Annie led a simple life that was pretty much taken up with her local Methodist church, where she was a regular worshipper and that she gave most of her spare money to, and a love of needlework, knitting and crafting which inevitably she would spend each afternoon and early evening doing alone in her front room. 
The bungalow was part of a sheltered accommodation complex, so an appointed warden checked in on it a couple of times each day, and she'd been supplied with a K-Link alarm system that could alert the warden from the pull of a cord or from the press of a button on the pendant that Annie wore in case of a fall or due to illness. Or, of course, distress. The evening of Monday the 8th of May 1995 was the 50th anniversary of VE Day, and although people up and down the UK had flags out and were celebrating with parties and fireworks, Annie, who was old enough to remember VE Day itself, wasn't celebrating it. She was instead working on a crochet pattern sat in her living room, a gift that she was donating to the local church when finished, accompanied by Emmerdale and Coronation Street in the background on the television. Now having a well-established routine, Annie would crochet until the soaps had finished, then at about 8pm would take a supper of a bowl of cornflakes and prepare herself for bed, capping her day off by writing up a daily diary at about 9.30 each evening in bed, then going to sleep. As we've said, she had a care-link system in place also that could be activated should she require assistance at any time through the night. Early the following morning, the warden assigned to check up on the welfare of the residents of the sheltered accommodation block on Little Lane knocked on Annie's door, knowing the old lady was a habitual early riser, but found that she got no answer. It concerned her enough that there was no answer from her ward, despite repeated knocking, that she used a passkey to enter the bungalow, thinking perhaps Annie was in need of some assistance. Opening the door, her concern turned to alarm when she took in the sight of clothing strewn around in the hallway, a vast contrast to the usually immaculate home that Annie kept. A bundle of letters lay on the floor underneath these items of clothing, a nightdress and tights, as well as a zimmer frame upturned. And the warden, getting no answer to her repeated calls for Annie, apprehensively made her way through the property, checking every room in turn. There was no sign of Annie in the living room or the bathroom, but the kitchen of the property showed signs of disturbance. Again, there was clothing strewn on the floor, this time being a dressing gown, and paperwork lay strewn over the tiles, mixed in with the upturned bowl of cornflakes that also lay scattered over it, the flakes and milk making a large pool of mess on the floor. There was only one room left to look in, for the bungalow was only a single bedroom one, and as she made her way towards it, apprehension growing, the warden became aware of a smell coming from there as she inched open the door. Now there are crime scenes, and there are crime scenes, and the scene that that warden discovered on the morning of Tuesday, May the 9th, 1995, was almost in a class of its own for sheer horror. Awaiting the warden in the bedroom of that bungalow was a sight that would undoubtedly haunt anyone finding it to the end of their lives, a sight the warden indeed described later as, I quote, like walking into a nightmare. The following contains disturbing descriptions of a crime scene, an injury detail, placed in not to cause any disrespect to the victim as I explained earlier, but because I want you to capture in your mind the horror of the scene as much as I did when I was researching this, to think about the type of individual that we're dealing with here. 
The frail old occupant of the bungalow, 90-year-old Annie Saxton, was found lying on her bedroom floor, the carpet beneath her saturated with blood, urine and excrement. Naked, aside from the petticoat that was fastened tightly around her neck and that had acted as the garrote used to choke the life out of her, her face bruised and bloody, Annie had been savagely beaten around the head and so viciously strangled that her eyes and tongue had bulged out of their housings, being left to lie in her own waist in a further indignity to the poor woman in the bedroom of the home that she always kept scrupulously clean. Now that's the stuff of nightmares enough, isn't it, for how absolutely horrendous is that? But the strangulation scene was mild in comparison with the rest of the picture. Horrifically, not content with such horror already, Annie's killer had also spent time to viciously and clinically mutilate Annie, including having stabbed her in both of her eyes, making a series of incisions to her torso that revealed her internal organs, and had even mutilated her genital area, the blood-stained pair of scissors used to do so being left discarded by the body. So extensive were the mutilations that at the subsequent trial of a killer the following year, only certain photographs could be shown to the jury, and those that were had to be heavily censored, so disturbing were they deemed. There aren't words to describe it, are there, really? Anything involving the elderly angers me beyond reason, and this one, who does something like this? What kind of creature does this, I ask you? The shocked warden immediately contacted police, and a murder inquiry led by Detective Superintendent Andrew Brown was subsequently launched with a visibly shaken Detective Superintendent Brown telling press after viewing the crime scene, In my 25 years as a police officer, this is one of the most horrific murders I have ever seen. She suffered horrendous injuries and would not have put up much of a struggle. Indeed, the mutilations were also the worst that examining Home Office pathologist Dr John Clark had seen in his career also. Now I didn't need a psychological profiler to tell police what kind of killer that they sought, for from the evidence of the crime scene, it was apparent that the person who'd killed Annie was a classic example of a sex killer, who'd probably started out with the usual delightful bloody traits that these creatures have, bullying, cruelty to animals, that kind of thing. But he'd now graduated from defenceless animals to defenceless people, and if he wasn't caught quickly, then he would probably kill again, and soon, because he'd clearly enjoyed this. The later post-mortem was to establish that the killer had torn off Annie's clothing, punching and stabbing her, then even suffocating her with a pillow, before finally garroting her with her own petticoat. He'd also struck her viciously around the head several times with a heavy ebony ledger rule, an ornament that Annie had retained as it had belonged to her late husband in his career as a rent collector. So, as the standard murder inquiry actions got underway, a picture of the victim being built up, standard procedure to ensure that this wasn't someone close to her, possibly a relative who had killed her, alongside house-to-house -house inquiries in the Little Lane area, Detective Superintendent Brown and his team pondered what type of person they were looking for. 
The picture that emerged of Annie was that of a respectable church-going retired telephone operator who was loved by all who knew her and who didn't have an enemy in the world. So it was surmised that Annie's killing had been an opportunistic murder. This killer had not targeted Annie for revenge or had stalked Annie previously or selected her in advance, targeting her specifically. He had, in all probability, spotted her while she was walking along Little Lane at some point and had instantly seen that she was frail and vulnerable, unable to offer any real resistance to his bubbling murderous onslaught. He may even have simply been walking past the accommodation and became aware that an elderly resident lived there telltale signs such as rails attached to the walls or ramps giving it away and with an urge to kill had opportunistically selected a victim that he could easily overpower one who would be almost defenseless due to their age and or their infirmity proper piece of shit that isn't it a cowardly inadequate scum So, when police learned Annie's established routine, and this was compared with the post-mortem reports and findings at the crime scene, they knew she'd likely been killed close to 8pm the previous evening, the cornflakes she would have had for supper around this time being spilt on the floor a good indicator of this. The initial attack had happened near the kitchen, with Annie perhaps being struck here, perhaps with this ebony ledger rule, and at least half stripped here, the killer then dragging her into the bedroom and throwing her on the bed where he completely stripped her and then began suffocating her with a pillow. She was then strangled with her own petticoat and then dragged onto the floor when dead where a pair of scissors was used to extensively stab and mutilate her. It was established that these mutilations had occurred after death but it could not be established exactly how long after death they'd been inflicted for Dr. Clark estimated that it could have been up to an hour afterwards. Had the killer remained in the property for this length of time, enjoying the carnage that he'd created? Now it takes some kind of psychological control that does to do that, remain at a scene for up to that long, because the need for flight would surely kick in beforehand once the deed is done. But there was evidence that he'd extensively searched the property post-mutilation as the bedroom showed signs of ransacking and a wardrobe that Annie had in her bedroom that her head was wedged up against had had items pulled out and strewn around the room. These items were not sprayed with blood either, meaning that they'd been removed after death. It was later established that Annie, who had no large sums of savings but who kept a small amount of ready cash in a purse in her wardrobe, had been robbed of just the £100. Nothing else was found to be missing from the property. Police knew that they were looking for an extremely dangerous, almost maniacal killer, yet one who showed some degree of self-control and forensic awareness. A forensic examination of the bungalow revealed no traces of the killer's DNA and out of the 55 palm and fingerprints found at the house that weren't Annie's, each were later identified and ruled out of the inquiry. The level of violence used was horrific and the mutilation would certainly suggest a maniac at work, yet one who it seemed had been rational and plausible enough and able to con his way into the property as evidence suggested that Annie had let her killer willingly into her home. There was no sign of any forced entry to the property, 
and despite the safety precautions, including a chain on the door and the alarm curling system that would summon assistance with the touch of a button, this hadn't been pressed and a killer had still got in. Had it been someone posing as an official of some sort, or was it even someone that Annie knew and trusted? Reportedly, the murder was featured extensively in the local press, although I could find pretty much bugger all about it through researching, and radio and television appeals were made to appeal to any witnesses who may have seen a stranger in the area on the night of the murder to come forward. Now house to house inquiries had already turned up such a person, a man who had been seen that evening by a number of witnesses in the Little Lane area, who was wearing a mustard coloured hooded top and a dark baseball cap. This man had been sighted by at least two people on the evening of the murder, including one who had seen him running very fast down the road from the direction of Annie's bungalow, and another who had shortly before this, she was almost certain, seen him walking down the path from Annie's front door. So a description of this individual was taken and an artist's impression made, which was then shown on television on the Wednesday evening, two nights after the murder. Now many of these people who commit horror like this become so detached that they like to try and involve themselves in the investigation in some way to help prolong their fantasy of the killing, be it writing to the police, hanging out around the crime scene, or coming out with false information or sightings, that sort of thing. And Annie's killer was no different. So sure enough, the artist's impression rapidly produced a suspect because he actually, arrogantly, came forward himself sure in the knowledge that police had not enough evidence to even arrest him, let alone charge and ultimately convict him. On the evening that the artist's impression was shown following the murder, Annie's killer sat down at his partner's house and watched this description of himself shown on the local television news. Such a good likeness was the photo-fit impression to him that his partner, the mother of his three children, remarked to him jokingly, Hey, listen to this, you're famous. And as the immature, arrogant killer, a 31-year-old unemployed layabout named Paul Butcher of Northfield Lane in the nearby town of South Kirkby, as he watched, he now made a characteristically arrogant decision. The following day, as we've said, gambling that police had no evidence to even arrest him, let alone convict him, Butcher went to the local police station and asked to speak to the officer in charge of the inquiry, Detective Superintendent Brown. When he got to speak to him, Butcher told him that he had been the man who had been depicted in the television appeal, claiming that he had indeed walked along Little Lane at the relevant time whilst heading to a pub at the end of the road, but that he was completely innocent of the murder and had come forward to eliminate himself from the inquiry. Detective Superintendent Brown asked Butcher what he'd done with his mustard-coloured top, thinking that because Annie's killer must have been heavily bloodstained, it would be of use to have the item forensically examined at a laboratory to completely rule him out. But Butcher replied that he'd gotten rid of the top after being sick all down it that evening. Instead of taking it home to wash, Butcher claimed that two nights previously, the night of the murder, he'd thrown it onto a communal bonfire on the council estate where he lived. So with suspicion very firmly in his mind when he heard this, Detective Superintendent Brown obtained an account of Butcher's movements, complete with witnesses who could place him at these, and following this, 
now tasked a team of detectives to head out and question the various people that Butcher claimed he had seen that evening, finding when they did that they told a very different story to the one Butcher had come out with. Several of these people who Butcher claimed he had seen told police that they'd noticed blood all down his mustard coloured top that evening, and when they'd asked him if he was injured, were told by him that it wasn't his blood, but had come from a fight that he'd been involved in. So already looking dodgier than Dominic Cummings' whiteboard here then, eh? But a check into Butcher's previous criminal record, for of course he did have one, convinced Detective Superintendent Brown and his team that this was their killer. A check on Butcher revealed that in the 1980s he'd come to police attention beforehand for horrific crimes that he'd committed against animals. And when reading the file on the case from the RSPCA, police became surer than ever that they had the right man. In 1987, Butcher, along with his girlfriend's father, had been convicted of the horrific slaughter of two dogs, one of them being battered to death, and the other, just a puppy, being stabbed and dismembered. Both men had been banned from keeping a dog for 10 years, and had been fined £200 plus costs for this. Now a far better punishment there would be being placed into a room with animal-loving decent people for an hour, I would have thought. But then I probably wouldn't make a very good judge. But people wouldn't bloody re-offend if I was, promise you. So this was just too much of a coincidence. The man suspected of murdering and mutilating Annie Saxton was here on paper, having earlier mutilated a puppy. Classic bloody textbook stuff that, isn't it? the typical psychological pattern of the sex killer. The following day then, Paul Butcher was arrested on suspicion of murder, but Detective Superintendent Brown, although as we've said sure in his own mind that this was Annie's killer, knew that at the time, the investigating officers had virtually nothing in the way of evidence that would prove this. The murder scene, as we've said, had been extensively tested for fingerprints, but none of them found were a match for those of Paul Butcher, nor were any traces of blood found that wasn't Annie's either. However, what was found in the ransacked kitchen, amongst the cornflakes and spilt milk that littered the floor, was an envelope from a letter from Yorkshire Electricity. Now, it had nothing visible on it, but it was sent to the forensic laboratory for examination to see if it yielded any prints. Which it did, but not in the way that Detective Superintendent Brown had expected. Invisible to the naked eye, and only detectable with the use of UV light, was the impression of a right boot print that was found to be stained with human tissue. It matched exactly the right boot of the pair that Paul Butcher had had on when he'd been arrested. Furthermore, when the boots had been seized and forensically examined to establish this, a discovery was made in one of the islets of a fatty deposit identified as being of human origin. It was enough, and following this, Paul Butcher was charged with the murder of Annie Saxton. So although he'd taken a calculated risk walking into that police station, knowing that he'd been careful during the killing, Butcher hadn't been careful enough. He'd been snared by the invisible bootprint on the letter. The trial of Paul Butcher began at Leeds Crown Court on Friday the 4th of October 1996, where he entered a plea of not guilty to the murder of Annie Saxton. For the prosecution, 
Paul Worsley QC opened the trial by describing to the court that Annie, a lady of 90 and who was just 5 feet 1 inches in height, had lived at the bungalow since the 1960s, alone after the death of her husband some years previously. Although it took the use of a Zimmer frame for her to initially get moving in the mornings, she was then able to get about and walk independently, but with the use of a cane. He then described her regular routine and pastimes, including a supper of cornflakes at 8pm each evening, before her retiring to bed and writing up a diary at 9.30 before sleep. Not only had her bowl of cornflakes been upturned and found scattered over the kitchen, but her diary had not been written up for the day of the 8th either, which both suggested that death had occurred that evening sometime between 7.30 and 9.30pm. He then described the extent of the violence that had been presented to the 90-year-old widow, explaining how Annie had been struck viciously in the side of the face, stripped naked, her clothing, some of which so violently had it been torn from her that they were ripped and were found in the kitchen and lounge, then suffocated with a pillow and then strangled, her petticoat being knotted tightly around her neck, all occurring probably in her bedroom. Her body had then been moved from the bed to the floor where it was found, before after death being stabbed in both eyes and having her body almost filleted open right down the middle. The pair of scissors that had been used to commit the horrific mutilation upon Annie had been found discarded by her body, and it was even possible that a killer had even returned to the scene some hours later to either inflict further mutilation upon her or to continue the search for the room had been extensively ransacked. The wardrobe doors were open in Annie's bedroom, wedged against her face, and various items had been pulled out of here, documents and other items strewn around the room, but just £100 was found to have been taken. The killer would be unable to truthfully account for his actions and movements for the middle of the evening of the murder, and he would have had blood on his clothing that he would have had to destroy, or at the very least conceal. He would have the stolen money in his possession, and of course, would have worn footwear that had left the boot impression at the scene, as the evidence discovered on the electricity bill had been presented to the jury. All of these criteria fitted Paul Butcher, Mr Worsley told the court. He claimed that Butcher had lied consistently about his movements on the evening of the murder, and he had subsequently gotten rid of both his trousers and the mustard-coloured jogging top that he was wearing that evening, clothing which had been seen by several to have had blood on it. Also, sometime that evening, he'd come into the possession of a large sum of money that he'd lied to police about the source of, and a fragment of human tissue had been found on his right shoe of the shoes he was wearing when arrested. Now smash me about the head with an unripe mango, because that's pretty bloody convincingly circumstantial that, isn't it? A witness who worked as bar staff at the Plough Inn at South Elmsall, and who'd been sharing a flat with Butcher at the time, told the court that Butcher had come into the Plough at lunchtime on the day of the murder, and had asked his flatmate to borrow some money from him. He was wearing a mustard-coloured top. I suppose you could say it was his favourite. He wore it all the time, the witness told the court. He continued that he'd next seen Butcher when he came back into the pub that evening to ask him this time for the loan of a shirt, because his own top had a large patch of blood staining 
to the right upper chest area. When he had asked Butcher what had happened, Butcher told him that he'd been playing pool in another pub and had won £90 from the man that he was playing against, showing him the notes that he had in his possession and had gotten into a fight over this, which accounted for an apparently injured arm that Butcher had, as well as grazes to his knuckles. It must have been about 9 or 9.30. Because I'd been working all day, I'd taken two shirts in with me, and I said that he could have the one I'd been wearing all that morning. It was a bit sweaty, but he put it on anyway, the witness told the court. Minging that, innit? Butcher had then used this money to buy several drinks until closing time, becoming quite drunk and having to have a taxi called to take him home. He told the court he hadn't seen Butcher again until he'd returned to the flat that they shared late that evening, after work, only to find Butcher had fallen asleep on the sofa and had been sick down himself. About 30 minutes before Butcher had returned to the pub and swapped shirts, however, Two witnesses told the court how at this time they'd seen a man loitering near to Annie's bungalow on the night of the murder, with one of them saying that she'd seen the man coming away from the bungalow, having walked down the path from the front door. He'd been wearing a distinct mustard-coloured top and dark baseball cap, and was described as being aged about 20 to 30 with a moustache. The second witness was a youth who was at the time being driven past by his father and who had seen a similar looking man running away very fast from the little lane area, telling the court. He looked frightened as if somebody were after him, but there was nobody at the back of him. His description matched that given by the first witness, although he thought that the man he had seen was younger, perhaps in his late teens, and furthered that he thought the man had been carrying what looked like a purse or a handbag. After various testimony from the examining pathologist, Dr. John Clark, police officers and forensic experts involved in the inquiry, by the third week of the trial, taking the stand himself, Butcher admitted to the court that he had walked past Mrs. Saxton's bungalow on the night that she'd been murdered, but that was all. He was adamant that he hadn't killed her and claimed that he'd never even been inside her house. He admitted to the court that he had lied about his movements that evening, however, and that he had lied about getting blood on his clothing following a bar fight, realising that he'd been stupid and should have just told the truth, that he had injured himself by knocking his arm against a bottle bank. Butcher claimed that he'd been drinking in various pubs in the South Elmsall area on the evening in question, and had just before 8pm walked down Little Lane towards the Moorthorpe Hotel at its end, where he had hoped to meet a friend of his. He claimed that upon entering, he couldn't see his friend in the bar, so had headed back outside to urinate against a row of bottle banks that were in the pub car park. Here, whilst doing so, he had felt dizzy and nauseous, and whilst leaning forward to vomit, had instead stumbled backwards and banged his right arm and shoulder on the bottle bank behind him. He said that he had no recollection of having any blood upon him, but if he did so, then it would have been because of this injury, not from a fight, as he had claimed to his friend. I was just showing off, really. It was stupid, he told the court. When he'd repeated this load of old crap to the police and others, it was because, Butcher claimed, I couldn't think straight. I wasn't thinking straight at all. 
Asked then why Butcher had reportedly asked a neighbour of his to keep hold of a diver's knife that he had hidden in a speaker in his home, Butcher was at great pains to claim that the knife had nothing to do with the killing whatsoever, but he thought that if the police got hold of it, he might not get it back, and it was an expensive knife. Mr Worsley told Butcher, You wouldn't know the truth if it hit you in the face, would you? You were the man who murdered Annie Saxton. Butcher replied, I didn't murder her. Mr Worsley then referred him through piece by piece the powerful circumstantial evidence that had placed him in the dock, right through to the boot print that had been discovered on the electricity bill found in the kitchen of the crime scene, that had been forensically matched to Butcher's right boot, saying, If it was your boot print on that letter, do you have any explanation as to how it came to be there? Butcher was forced to admit, there is no reason for my footprint to be there, no. At the end of the four-week trial, the jury deliberated for 11 hours before on Monday the 4th of November 1996 returning a unanimous verdict of guilty of murder, a verdict which Ponytail Butcher placed his hands in his face and visibly slumped as he heard. Facing the presiding Mr Justice Nelson, Butcher couldn't look up as the judge told him. This was a savage, cowardly and contemptible offence. The jury have found you guilty of attacking, punching, strangling and suffocating the 90-year-old widow Annie Saxton. You then carried out a clinical and grotesque mutilation of her body. The law requires me to pass upon you a sentence of life imprisonment and that is the sentence I pass. Paul Butcher was then taken to Wakefield Prison to begin this life sentence. After the trial, Senior Investigating Officer Detective Superintendent Andy Brown said, When Paul Butcher gave evidence, he came across as a pathetic individual who had never had any real success in life, but we consider from what he did to his victim that he is an extremely dangerous man indeed. Some of the photographs of how he had left Mrs Saxton were so disturbing that we had to paint out parts of the photographs submitted in evidence as they would have been too distressing for the jury. You can't even imagine, can you? Too bloody right he is an extremely dangerous man. Now Butcher has never given any sort of explanation for why he chose to attack and so brutally murder Annie Saxton that May evening. He's never given any notion of how he made his way into the property and has never even admitted nor expressed even a shred of remorse for his monstrous crime. And that's putting it mildly, for I was truly horrified when researching this one. I really was. He remains a serving prisoner to this day, but I'm sure that you'll be pleased to know a despised one due to the nature of his offence. Just two months after starting his life sentence, the course of how Butcher's prison time would run over the years was established when on Sunday the 4th of January 1997, he was attacked by two other prisoners and was slashed with a razor, suffering wounds to his face and chest, although reportedly the wounds being not too serious ones. I bet your heart bleeds as much as mine does, doesn't it? So a truly horrendous tale for starters there, I'm sure you'll agree. And I have another one for you that we shall get to following a short word from the episode sponsors, the new series Memory Lane, which is brought to you by Realm. 
Realm is an audio entertainment company that collaborates with best-selling and award-winning writers, directors, artists and actors to create original fiction podcasts, a mix of expansive, diversive and immersive shows. And one of its latest wonderful offerings, from the pen of New York Times best-selling author of the Pretty Little Liars series, Sarah Shepard, and author of the ruled duology, Ellen Goodlett, is Memory Lane a mystery that plays out over multi-episodes and one that will have listeners on the edge of their seat. Memory Lane tells the story of Alex Bryant, a troubled girl with an estranged relationship with her mother Cassie and who has several burning questions that only Cassie can answer. So, when Cassie suggests that they both participate in a study on implanted memories to help heal their relationship, Alex believes her chance has finally come to get some answers including learning who her father is and why her mother insists on keeping his identity a secret. But following the study, the memories Alex receives seem tainted. People are missing from Cassie's memories, places she claims to have never visited are there, and recollections of violent events that she's adamant didn't happen. Then, just when Alex is on the brink of discovering the truth, a threat from Cassie's past resurfaces, determined to stop both women in their tracks. Forced on the run from their own minds, their relationship pushed to its breaking point, if they have any hope of survival, Alex and Cassie must trust one another like they never have before. You're about to hear a trailer for Memory Lane, which you can learn more about at realm.fm and which is available wherever you grab your podcasts from. For years I've been trying to get my mom to talk about her past. This study might reveal things I've always wanted to know. About her, about my dad, about me. The hope is that you and your mother have similar enough brains for the memories to transfer smoothly. As Cassie might have mentioned, she selected a series of memories from when she was pregnant with you that she wants to pass on. I want answers about my mother's past, yes. But I can't help worrying that I won't like what I find. After all, it's not like I don't have ghosts of my own. A memory? Please? Maybe this is what she's been running from all this time. The terrible thing that happened to her. Someone tried to kill her. One way or another, I'm getting answers. Even if I have to break my brain to do it. Realm presents Memory Lane, starring Emily Wuzeller, Leanne Marie Dobbs, and Elliot Schiff. If you like what you hear, please follow and share this podcast with your friends. Realm is your portal to another world. Listen away. Learn more about Memory Lane at realm.fm and be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For our second and final tale of the episode then, we head down from West Yorkshire to the county of Devon in the southwest of the UK, and almost six months on from Annie's horrific murder to October 1995, and to Horson Court, a large and secluded stable set in the acres of the heavily wooded grounds of a Victorian mansion in the village of Scoriton, just three miles from the village of Buckfastley. And it's here that we shall meet a girl named Jessica Hurlstone, or Jessie as she was known to her family and friends, and as we shall call her also. Now, Jessie Hurlstone loved horses, 
Many young girls go through a stage of developing a passion for horses, of course, don't they? And for most of them, it is just this. It's a stage that they soon grow out of. But at age 27, Jessie still retained this passion, for she absolutely lived for them. It being her lifelong dream to work with horses. In 1991, she'd moved down to Devon from her home in Romford in Essex after she'd found employment working as a stable hand for the leading national hunt trainer, Richard Frost, who, along with his wife, Glynn, had run horse and court stables since the 1960s and who was the father of the 1989 Grand National winner, Jimmy Frost, who had ridden to victory in that year's race on Little Polver. Jessie was almost instantly at home here, loving the work as she was able to be paid for indulging in her love of horses and being highly thought of by the Frost family in turn, who joked that Jessie even preferred horses to the company of men, and which she did nothing to correct them about. She even lived on the premises in a caravan tucked away in a corner of the yard, where Jessie was extremely happy, living with her four cats and a dog. It sounds a right bloody caravan that does like, doesn't it? But she loved it, feeling settled and even comforted, when not in work and in bed of an evening, as she could hear her beloved horses moving about in their stalls. So good was she at her job, so dedicated, that just the previous September, she'd been nominated for the apparently prestigious Stable Lad of the Year Award. For a couple of years, things were fine, but then a man came into her life. Stephen John Webber, a 38-year-old farmhand and local odd job man, and who lived alone in a bungalow just half a mile from the stables, became aware of Jessie in 1994 and developed a bit of a thing for her, which became an obsession. Now, in any normal person, this might not have been ser as serious as that sounds, and it could have been remedied with a case of simply washing the woman out of your hair, a saying that I've never quite understood, that is, but I digress. But this wouldn't work with Stephen Webber, for he had a history of mental instability. When he was in his teens in the early 1970s, Weber had begun an affair with a local married woman and had fallen head over heels in love with her. But when their affair ended suddenly after being discovered, he'd taken it badly and had attempted committing suicide, taking an overdose of tablets. His mother had found him unconscious, however, and had saved his life by quickly telephoning for an ambulance where he was rushed to hospital to have his stomach pumped. Since then, he'd been prone to epileptic seizures and had suffered a series of panic attacks under situations of stress. A solitary and shy man as a result, Weber had few friends and found close relationships with women to be difficult. But as he worked as an odd job man, though mainly in the role of farm labourer, as a result, his working day was often over before midday. And as he only lived three fields away from horse and court, where he worked often, he would spend many hours over here, even if not working, because he was then primarily there to be close to the girl that he'd become dangerously obsessed with. Now Jesse had dated Weber briefly, there is no confirmation as to what extent this relationship developed into, but it was described certainly as brief. It was crystal clear that Weber was an obvious social misfit, and Jesse dating him could equally have been out of pity for him, as for any attraction to him. The casual dates were just that, casual. There were no reports of the couple being intimate at any time, but they were fatal dates. 
for Stephen Webber was a man who became fixated upon women and became instantly possessive towards them. There was no in-between with him, it was all or nothing. So when he discovered at the start of October 1995 that the object of his obsession, Jesse Hurlstone, had started a relationship with another man, a 49-year-old local handyman named James Pierce, he wasn't best pleased. Not at all. On the morning of Saturday, October the 20th, 1995, another stable girl working at Horse and Court, 18-year-old Jessica Neal, knocked on the door of Jessie's caravan after the normally punctual and conscientious girl had failed to arrive out for early morning mucking out of the stables. What Jessica found, after trying the door with no response to her repeated knocking, scarred her beyond belief and is undoubtedly something that she still keeps with her today and shall do for the rest of her days. For the scene inside Jessie's caravan was one of what can only be described as utter carnage. Lying on the floor of her caravan, clad in a heavily blood-stained nightdress, lay the body of Jessie Hurlstone, horribly disfigured. Her head, I quote, mangled beyond belief, is how she was later described. She'd suffered what was determined at the later post-mortem to be at least 30 blows to the head, face, arms and shoulders with a heavy, solid instrument. Blows that had been inflicted with maniacal fury and that had shattered her head so badly that she had to be formally identified by her fingerprints alone. The walls and ceiling of the caravan were running with blood that had sprayed everywhere from the frenzied attack that had been inflicted upon her. As the resulting murder inquiry, led by Detective Superintendent Steve Pierce, got underway, it was established that Jesse's killer had gained access to the caravan by completely ripping out one of the windows, so firefighters were called to remove completely one side of the caravan so that Jesse's body could be removed without interfering with or possibly destroying any forensic evidence that may have been left behind by her killer. Now a police search team of 50 officers were later that day to recover the murder weapon, a huge and heavy iron hook that was used for loading silage bales onto a tractor and that had been dumped in a nearby farm slurry pit along with some blood-stained clothing and they didn't have to look far for their prime suspect either. Everyone at the stables knew of Weber's infatuation with Jessie and on the afternoon before her death, the Friday, She'd even confided to Mr. Frost that Weber was constantly watching her. Stalking her would be a more apt word to use. The fear that the girl had was very apparent, to the point where, after returning from a pub in Buckfastly that evening, she'd even asked Mr. Frost if he would walk her back to the caravan. And as a result, Mr. Frost not only urged her to go to the police with him to report Weber's behaviour, but to even move into the farmhouse to sleep that evening. But the headstrong and independent girl refused this, saying that she could handle the situation. I don't think he'll hurt me, she told him. The next morning, she was dead, mangled beyond belief. Immediately the prime suspect in Jesse's murder then, when Stephen Webber was arrested and questioned later the same day, he denied responsibility for the killing and instead gave a coherent, rational and detailed account of his movements the previous evening. But when he was re-interviewed the following day, 
Now having had time in a cell to consider things, he now made a complete confession to detectives. He claimed that he had indeed killed Jesse and had planned the murder, having watched Jesse for several days with her new boyfriend. Just 10 days after she'd begun this new relationship, Weber had broken into her caravan and had killed her. Late that Friday night, Weber claimed that he'd walked across the fields from his bungalow, stealing into the barn nearby to Jesse's caravan and selecting the large metal baling hook that was hanging on a nail inside. After ripping out the window of the caravan in a fury, he'd gotten in and attacked and killed her, then stripping off his blood-stained clothing, made his way back across the fields, where he drove in his underwear to the home of a friend he had previously arranged to spend the night at, and from whose home he had crept out when the occupants were asleep. He had bathed here, then had gone out again to throw his blood-stained clothing and the murder weapon into a slurry pit nearby. Returning back to his friend's house, he'd slept there, and had then rose early in the morning to begin work as usual, hoping that his apparently normal behaviour would allay any suspicion from him. In his confession, he told police that when he broke the caravan window to get in, Jesse had woken up and shouted at him, asking him what he was doing. Weber had replied, I'm here to teach you a lesson. His statement continued, I killed Jessica Hurlstone. I planned to see her that Friday one way or another. I wanted to get my own back for the way she'd been treating me. I'd fallen over backwards to help her, but she made me feel small. I know I had an iron bar in my hand, but that was to frighten her, to tell her I'm tired of being messed around. She sat up in bed and told me she would report me to the police. I replied, no you bloody won't, and that's when I just lost it and began hitting her. I did not plan to hit her, but I hit her, and I hit her, and I hit her, I hit her so much that I ran out of puff. From then on, I can't recall what I did, but the next thing I knew, she was dead on the floor. She was a mess. Stuff of nightmares that, isn't it, eh? 30 times bloody hellfire. Subsequently charged with the murder of Jessica Hurlstone, Stephen John Weber appeared before Torquay Magistrates on Monday the 23rd of October 1995 where he was remanded in further custody awaiting trial. Jesse's family, friends and employers, meanwhile, were left to try and pick up the pieces left by the void in their lives that Weber had caused, which the Frost family did in part by later naming an established annual steeplechase race held at Devon and Exeter Racecourse in memory of the murdered woman, a tribute that Jesse would undoubtedly have loved. Her stepfather, Terry Hurlstone, told the local press just some days after the murder. Jessie just loved horses from the day she first saw one. Her life revolved around horses and it was her joy in life to work with them. We spoke to her this week and she seemed very jolly. She told us she'd been riding in steeplechases and was very happy. She loved the life down in Buckfast Lee. This is a terrible tragedy. What has happened is devastating. When Stephen Webber's trial began at Exeter Crown Court more than a year later, on November the 12th, 1996, he pleaded not guilty to murder, but admitted manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. In his opening speech for the prosecution, Roderick Denyer QC told the court that 39-year-old Webber 
had killed Jesse simply because his feelings towards her were not reciprocated and he couldn't bear her being with anyone else. So 10 days after she'd started a new relationship, his feelings had festered until they erupted on the evening of October the 20th the previous year. He had broken into her caravan and hit her so hard and so often with a heavy iron bailing hook that he became too exhausted to strike her any more, leaving the young woman mangled beyond belief. Holding up the murder weapon for the jury to see clearly, Mr. Denyer told them, He killed her by beating her with this iron hook. There were 30 injuries to her head, arms and shoulders, including 10 major head injuries and face fractures. Jesse's brain was effectively pulped. Just imagine 30 separate maniacal blows. Time yourself making 30 blow-like movements. It's pretty bloody horrific that, isn't it? Mr. Denyer continued that it was possible that Jesse had previously had a brief sexual relationship with Weber in 1994. This has never been clearly established, as I said before, but that his dangerous obsession with her began almost a year later, at the start of 1995. The stable girl who had discovered Jesse's body, Jessica Neal, told the court, Weber was extremely possessive towards Jesse and said that he loved her. He would have done anything for her, even sign over his house to her if she'd asked him to. He used to buy her loads of presents and gave her at times a bird and an expensive pedigree cat. But Jesse just wanted friendship and that was it. There was no sexual relationship. When Weber visited her at the stables, she almost cut him dead. I've heard her say she was a bit of a bitch to him. Yet he was still obsessed with her. He'd even made her, without her knowledge, the sole beneficiary of his will, leaving her his bungalow and all of his worldly possessions. Jesse, however, constantly rejected all of Weber's advances, not wanting a relationship with him, and Mr. Denyer told the court, he found the idea of Jesse going out with any other man difficult to come to terms with. This obsession derived from the oldest motive in the world. If I can't have her, then nobody else can either. The boyfriend that Jesse had begun a fledgling relationship with just 10 days before her murder, James Pierce, told the court that on the Monday night before her death, she had visited him at home and when leaving, he had walked her out to her car and had kissed her goodbye. She seemed to be almost on edge, he claimed, and as she got into her car, he became aware of someone behind him. He told the court, He walked into the middle of the street to avoid me. I turned around to walk back to my house, and he walked by me once again, again in the middle of the street. I didn't know why at the time I suspected vandalism, so I watched him. He got into a car and drove off in the same direction Jesse had gone, driving very fast. Then, on the night of Jesse's murder, James had met her in the White Hart pub in Buckfastley and continued to the court. She was very nervous and was actually shaking, although she said this was because she was cold rather than afraid. I saw someone outside the pub and Jesse drew my attention to him. It was the same man I had seen on the Monday night. He was walking past the window of the darts room in which we were sitting. In court, James Pierce identified the man he'd seen on both of these mentioned occasions as Stephen Webber, pointing to him stood in the dock.
Jimmy Frost, the horse trainer's son and Grand National winning rider, was also a principal witness for the prosecution and told the court that Jessie was a cheerful girl, one who was very dedicated to a job and who was very good with the horses. He told also how he had known Webber since his childhood and had come to believe that he was indeed obsessed with Jessie, saying, He made it pretty clear that he had fairly strong feelings for her. On one occasion, about three months before the murder, he said if she had anyone else, he would kill her. It worried me, for it was not a flippant comment. I felt it was serious. When people say these things when the tempers are raised, that's one thing, but this conversation was in peaceful circumstances. At the time, we were out working with the cows. He said that he wanted her to be his friend, and that if she ever went out with anyone else, he didn't think he could stand it and would kill her. On the evening before her death, Jessie had told him that Weber had been stalking her for at least two weeks and had only earlier that day followed her car. When she'd stopped the vehicle, got out and confronted him about this, there'd been an angry public row between the two. Mr Frost continued, That was when she became really worried. I said to her, Come on, let's go to the police and sort this out. But she didn't want to cause any fuss, although she did feel it was worrying. She even said that she might have to leave the job and move away. She was really spooked that night, but she thought she could cope. She told me she'd been sexually assaulted as a teenager and had managed to weather that so she could weather Stephen Webber. But the poor girl sadly couldn't, could she? Mr Denyer said that Webber had claimed that his attack was unpremeditated that he'd simply gone to the caravan to talk to Jessie about claims that she'd made, that he wanted to get her into trouble at work, and that she'd even struck him across the head with a bailing hook. But these were clearly not true, as he had stalked and watched Jessie and her new boyfriend for a full week, working out his murder plan. He'd arranged to stay at a friend's house that Friday evening to create an alibi for himself, and had even borrowed his parents' car to drive that evening instead of using his own distinctive red Suzuki Jeep. When he saw Jesse coming out of the White Hart pub in Buckfastly that Friday evening, he decided to put his plan into action. He waited until his friends had gone to bed before slipping out of their house undetected and making his way to her caravan, where he had then deliberately unleashed hell and deliberately created pure carnage. His bullshit claims simply a fabrication so Weber could try and use a defence of provocation to the murder charge. From the witness box, when he came to give evidence on his own behalf, Weber told the jury that on one occasion the previous year, he and Jesse had gone to bed together at his bungalow. But he claimed that they'd not had sex that evening, Jesse later telling him she realised that it had been a mistake. She later cut him dead when he visited friends working at horse and stables, causing him intense humiliation and distress. He repeated that when he'd gone over to Jesse's caravan that night, it had not been with the intention of killing her, but to, I quote, teach her a lesson, which he'd pretty much bloody well gone above and beyond in doing, hadn't he? The defence attempted to claim that because of his documented history of mental instability, Weber had not been responsible for his horrific actions that Friday night, but at the end of the five-day trial, on Monday the 18th of November 1996, 
the jury decided unanimously that Stephen John Webber was guilty of murder, not manslaughter. Sentencing him to life imprisonment, presiding Mr Justice Rougier told him, However that girl treated you, there is no excuse nor mitigation for battering the life out of her in this terrible act of revenge. However a retiring person you may have been normally, the very fact of this terrible killing shows that there must be in you a capacity for quite horrible violence. Following the trial, the Frost family, each devastated by the death of the girl that they'd become so fond of that she was considered almost a member of the family, said that they kept wondering, what if? What if they'd insisted that Jessie sleep in the house that evening? What if they'd gone to the police, even against her judgment, and reported Stephen Webber for his behaviour? Mrs Frost said, You keep asking if, if, if all the time, but as far as the law stands, what could the police have done? And if she'd stayed indoors that night, then he would have come for her another night. Jesse's stepfather Terry said later that the defence claimed that Jesse had actually encouraged Webber's affections only to then spurn him was an insult to the memory of the murdered woman. He said, I have no feelings for this man at all. I just cannot understand how he could have done such an appalling thing and then to cap it all off in his defence by trying to denigrate Jesse. Jesse's boyfriend James Pierce meanwhile said, she came to the pub with me the night before she died and she was trembling with fright. She said this guy Weber had been harassing her. She was clearly nervous and then she pointed to the window and there he was glaring in through the window. I told her she couldn't go home that night and that we should call the police but Weber had gone by the time we left. He killed her the next day and every time I saw him in the dock during the trial I kept thinking that if I'd insisted Jesse might be alive today. Two years after his conviction, in September 1998, it was reported that police had reopened the case following claims from Stephen Webber, although on what exact basis these claims were and of what substance isn't reported. It would seem, however, based on the following comment from Jesse's stepfather Terry, that Webber had intimated that there was someone else involved at least to some capacity, in the murder. He said, to an article sourced from the bloody Racing Post of all publications, It's three years since Jesse died and we were just getting back to leading a normal life and it all flares up again. It's very upsetting for the family, but the police have a job to do. I'm sure that anyone involved in Jesse's murder must be brought to trial. Now following these allegations made from Webber, Detectives had reportedly reopened the files on the murder, with Webber now reported to be considering an appeal in the light of the police inquiries. Acting Detective Inspector Dave Taylor confirmed at the time that five officers from the Ivy Bridge area were dealing with this inquiry and were awaiting results of scientific tests being carried out at the Home Office Laboratories in Chepstow, though on what items exactly these were were not revealed. Detective Inspector Taylor said at the time, We are keeping an open mind and until we have the full facts, I am unable to comment. However, a spokesperson for the Crown Prosecution Service said in the same article that they had no knowledge of any appeal from Weber, at that time anyway, 
and nothing further is available through research about this possible development. Weber was indeed to appeal his conviction, which was heard and was upheld at the Court of Appeal on January the 26th, 2000, by a panel chaired by Lord Chief Justice Bingham. However, Weber served less than 20 years of his life sentence before being released on life license seven years ago in 2014. But in August 2016, the then 59-year-old Stephen Weber appeared before magistrates in Truro Magistrates Court, where he pleaded guilty to charges of stalking another woman between April and July of that year. The Truro bench heard that following his release from his life sentence, Weber had moved to the Cornwall village of Mullion and had soon become fixated with another woman, much how he had two decades previously with Jessie. The court heard how he had over the period of the preceding three months spied on the latest victim, had loitered around her, had made unwanted constant contact towards her and become possessive and intrusive towards her. Weber admitted each charge and aside from magistrates jailing him for a 10-week sentence and making an indefinite restraining order banning him from any contact with the latest victim, he was as a result also recalled to his life sentence, it being a breach of his life license conditions, and he remains a serving prisoner to this day. Where he totally belongs for mangling beyond belief a young woman, all because she didn't want him. So a proper pair of truly horrendous tales this time around then, aren't they? And what do you say about creatures? You can't call them men as that implies that they're human, but creatures such as Paul Butcher and Stephen Webber. I found both of these tales absolutely tragic, horrific and angry ones. And especially in the case of Paul Butcher, I believe that had his own arrogance not led him to come forward to police, thinking he was Billy Big Bollocks and he was fireproof, then had he not been caught, he would undoubtedly have gone on to kill again. If, of course, Annie was his first killing. It's a point I really couldn't make up my mind about that one is, because you have his horrific past of cruelty to animals, and you know that he's capable of committing such horror anyway, so with that in him, would he really have waited so long to make the jump from animals to people eight years? But also, if you think of the level of overkill towards Annie, the poor lady was stabbed, strangled, suffocated and mutilated. It's almost like someone is experimenting with how it feels to kill for the first time that is, isn't it? Butcher could certainly be a strong suspect in any past unsolved crimes, particularly ones committed against the more vulnerable members of society. And undoubtedly, even if that one killing was his only murder, then it's pure horror enough that warrants that he should never be released. An elderly widow of 90. What an absolute parasite. The case of Stephen Webber and his obsession with Jesse Hurlstone also, I mean, I can empathise with the comments from the Frost family and Jesse's boyfriend saying about what if, because you would surely torture yourself, wouldn't you? Thinking that had you acted in a certain way, she may still be alive. And it isn't for me to call out people and say that Weber should have been reported or she should have stayed with her boyfriend or in the Frost farm and they're remiss for not insisting that because, as Mrs Frost said, he would have just come for her another night. And it seems to me, sadly, that he would have done. 
For if you're that hell-bent that if you can't have someone, then no one else will, that you shatter, you mangle beyond belief the head, inflicting 30 blows with a heavy bailing hook, and only stopping because you're too exhausted to strike any more, then such an individual would surely stop at nothing until they'd achieved their aim. Time, place, I'm sure they're not just forgetting about it when they wake up the next morning. I'm sure that they could wait. It seems mind-boggling, but probably not surprising, sadly, that Weber was released after serving less than 20 years, and is fortunate, really, that he was re-arrested when he was and recalled to his life sentence. For in the scant few details that are available about his exploits in 2016, it seems an almost carbon copy of what he'd done 20 years previously. And look how that ended up. The latest lady was most fortunate, I imagine. What do you folks think? I would love, as always, hearing your thoughts and feedback concerning the tales I've presented in the episode Mutilated and Mangled, which to do so, you can chip in on the thread that's always up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or through any of the show's social media links. I'm always happy to hear from you guys wherever you know that. It's wrap-up time here now then, and that arc is coming shortly but I've decided I think I'll chuck in just one more standalone tale before then that will be coming next time around. I thank you very kindly for joining me here today for the episode, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you all very soon. Take care folks, stay safe out there, and goodbye for now.